What you want to do is you want to find somebody who cares about you, somebody who loves you, who's not necessarily directly involved in your business or does not necessarily do business with you and is more concerned about investing in you than what they can get out of it. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, friends. David Wright, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. This afternoon, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Paul Argonchona. Paul, good to have you on. Well, thanks, David. I appreciate it. Yeah, Paul, to get started, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your current role. Well, currently, I'm the Chief Information Officer for Frontier Behavioral Health in Spokane, Washington, and Frontier Behavioral Health Behavioral Health Services Provider provide the services to our clientele in the greater Spokane County area. We have roughly 17 locations and we provide both outpatient and inpatient services across multiple program areas and also provide support for the new 988 National Suicide Line for our regional crisis line services. Now more than ever with everything we had going on, COVID and the pressure that put on people. So I'll look forward hearing a little bit more about your guys' mission and vision. We like to start the episode, though, with one piece of actionable advice that you might look give our listeners today. Well, you know, I was thinking that's a good question. I was thinking about it. And I guess a lot of people tell you to, you know, go out and get a find a mentor. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to put some parameters on the mentor side of things. What you want to do is you want to find somebody who cares about you, somebody who loves you, who's not necessarily directly involved in your business or does not necessarily do business with you and is is more concerned about investing in you than what they can get out of it. Now, granted, that is much easier said than done, but that effort will go a long way to benefiting anybody in their career and in their life. I'm fortunate to have a few men in my life provide that for me. And as a good friend of mine says, they love me enough to stab me in the front. Yeah. I love that. When, as you were saying it, I'm realizing that I do have a couple folks my life and mom did a really good job of promoting kind of relationships like that. Another guest that we had on a little while back, Lee Milligan had mentioned kind of, yeah, the importance of having someone to really be able to hold up that mirror for you and someone who you love, who you have that love with, where 
there's just an appreciation for what they have to say, be it good, bad, or indifferent. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. or not even good or bad, but just what it is. So yeah. great advice. So Paul, maybe we could go backwards a little bit. Could you tell everyone a little bit about how you started out and how you got to be the CIO of you know large behavioral health practice today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I start with computers it was obviously back in my undergraduate days and took a couple of programming classes, COBOL and Fortran. And this is interesting, but it didn't really stir my cocoa. And I kind of thought, huh, this is kind of not something I'm interested in. Mm. And ended up getting a bachelor's degree in economics. And at that time, that was back, gosh, way back in the mid eighties. And the economies weren't, the economy wasn't great and ended up going over to the Seattle area and to look for a job and was offered a position selling computers. And I took it because it terrified me and showed technical aptitude, worked for a small little outfit who was selling clones and gray marketing IBMs back then. And as I said, showed technical aptitude. So the boss said, okay, you need to make sure everything works before it's out the door here. And Datton took over as a service manager and kind of launched me there, moved back to Spokane after a couple of years as a, in a service management position, got into networking with Novell, became a systems engineer, and it's just kind of morphed through the years to run a, start a couple of departments and run them. And a little over 10 years ago, Frontier was having trouble with an electronic medical record implementation. And I'd actually run through some processes way back in year 2000, helping another large clinic in the area get through some Y2K problems. Wow. That the difficulties there really paralleled what Frontier was going through. And so they decided to hire me and we got things to settle down as much as possible, reasonably possible in about a six month period. And just kind of moved along from there and are currently helping to manage the solutions and implement the new technologies that, you know, beneficial for our clinical providers who take care of our clients. And in behavioral health, we use the term client instead of patient because patient has a stigma. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think my mom uses the same terminology. So Paul, I want to ask you, you touched on a really good one to kind of start the episode with the advice you gave our listeners, but along the course of your journey, personally, professionally, and otherwise, what's one of the most important things that you learned along the way? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? Well, early on, I was really delving deep into the technology side, you know, because there was kind of a gee whiz factor to it, you know, and now late father-in-law told me way back when he said, Hey, it's all about relationships. Mm. And that's something that I heard and have really learned that it really is because in the 30 plus years I've been doing this, the technology's all changed. Right. And what you find is you find the chips of value and the ones you can count on and they end up being very beneficial sometimes in the near term. And sometimes in the long term, I have some professional relationships that are well over 20 years old that are still very beneficial today. And the technology's all different. Right. I actually tell my team about how, for me, it's about building the relationship first. Yeah, obviously, we're happy. To, we'll share our experience. And then if our experience can be of value at some point, great. Otherwise, maybe there's something else we can do. Maybe it's not even in relation to the work that we're doing. Maybe it's a great mechanic near where they live or whatever, but it's about the relationship first. So I, that's, I love that. I'm interested in knowing too, how did you, you were, became a very high technical aptitude. And as you stepped into a CIO role, how did you grow your operational understanding and your understanding of people and that? Because I feel like a lot of the CIOs that came up 
through a similar track, some of them really struggled with that, but it seems like you're kind of thriving in that arena. So I'm just interested in learning more about maybe some of the things that you did to really step into that leadership role. Well, one of the things I like to say is I prefer a technical problem over a people problem any day because I know I can solve the technical one necessarily. You know, that being said, going back to the advice from my father-in-law, it's all about relationships. I've always cared about people and to make sure that they're doing well, things are going well for them because in making sure things are going well for them, a good work life doesn't necessarily translate into life outside of work, Mm. but a good life outside of work translates in. Mm. And if you can show people you care about them more than just what they're providing for you as an employer, a coworker, there's benefit to that for them. And, you know, sometimes you end up helping them shoulder their burdens, just showing them that you care about them. And that makes a big difference. And it also provides opportunity in some of the positions I've had. I've been able to basically see an individual doing something and thinking that individual could step into this role for us here and do really well. And I've done that a few times for a few people over the over these several years and they've thrived and it's been really professionally rewarding and personally rewarding to see them do so well and to step into something that I thought that they could do. And they've done really well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm glad I asked that follow-up because that was a great soundbite too. So Paul, now I want to ask about one of your biggest challenges over the course of your career. So time that you may have failed or were challenged, but you took away a big lesson from it. Obviously in IT and digital, we, we've all failed plenty of times, but is there something that sticks out in your mind as something where it was a very impactful for you as a business professional? I think looking at some of the failures, I've been fortunate. I've never had a catastrophic cataclysmic failure from an IT standpoint. I tend to- Knock on wood look at solutions and look at some of the newer things out there. Granted, all that glitters isn't gold. You don't become a big fish by going after every shiny little object. But there was a time where I had, we were looking for a, and I'll just, I'll be general because I don't want to lay anybody out here, looking for a security related solution and found a vendor. Well, in my discussions with the vendor, they were relatively new in the marketplace. They misrepresented what their product could do. Mm. And that misrepresentation was something that was untenable for us. We couldn't stay, we couldn't stick with the product. So we had to abandon it. Fortunately, it was now it's not a small number, but it was only about $60,000. It's not a multi-million dollar failure or anything like that. So what I learned from that is, or was reestablished in my mind is make sure you get references and that you can check on things in particular, when something is quote unquote new, Mm. maybe be a little more careful and breathe a little bit. Now, With that being said, I've still jumped into some very kind of newer technologies and things like that, and they've tended to work really well. But just be careful of those, some of those shiny objects. Yeah. Or those shiny salespeople, right? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be interested in learning more about some of those new solutions that you guys are using. And I want to get into that. So before we get into what you guys are up to now, I'd like to ask, Favorite book or literary piece either that you're reading now or all time? I'm between books right now. So there's nothing I'm into right at the moment. A couple of my favorite books, one of your previous guests mentioned The Checklist Manifesto. Right. And I think that's a great book. I think anybody in IT or anybody in management should read that thing. Just the case background and how it came about is fascinating, very beneficial. One of the other books that is on my list, and I actually kind of broke it down and utilized it to help 
train my staff is a book called What's Best Next by Matt Perman. What I did is I took that and utilized the concepts in that to tie the mission at Frontier Behavioral Health back to what all my staff do each and every day. Mm. And by taking those in, because we always have priorities or tasks that we need to do. And the different ways to look at those tasks are how much time are they going to take or what is their priority? And so you're obviously going to do the higher priority ones first. Well, but you also have to weigh how much time that task is going to take. And if you have between those tasks, there's what I like to call the interstice or the space. And I kind of get that idea from in between your ribs, there's an interstitial muscle that helps you breathe. It's a small little space, but they're important. Well, if you have your tasks lined up in the priorities, and then as you go through your day, you'll have these little spaces of time. What's a small one that's a high priority that I can slip in between these two larger ones to get that done? And how does that tie into what we're trying to accomplish to take care ultimately of the clients we serve? And I thought it was very, very beneficial. I think they got a lot out of it. I know I got a lot out of it. And that's why I recommend that book. I think it's excellent. Between that yeah. and Checklist Manifesto, and then another book by Peter Block called Stewardship, which I read 20 some years ago, hmm. was another great one. All right. I'm going to check all those out. I tell folks, this is how I build my book list. So thank you. So, and it's actually a great transition, Paul, into the next part of the episode where I'd like to learn more about really the, the vision for Frontier Behavioral Health and then past that, how your vision for IT and digital kind of has matriculated from that. Well, the I'm a pretty simple guy. The vision for Frontier Behavioral Health is to provide the greatest ability that we can by keeping technology out of the way of our clinicians doing their job to take care of our clients. Mm. The technology really is there for reference and to capture information. And then obviously we capture that information, process it, and that allows us to bill and report. So we're compensated for the services that we provide to our clients so we can keep the doors open and keep providing services. So it's it's not something where I want to pound the desk and say, hey, technology is the answer here. No, technology is simply a tool to help support our clinical staff in taking care of the clients because that's what ultimately we're about. And that's the reason I have the job. It's to take care of the clients. I just don't do it directly. Right. I love that. And then that's one of the reasons I work so feverishly with healthcare organizations is because if I can play the most minute role in helping them serve the clinicians that serve the patients, you know, it's making me a part of something greater than just IT and digital business consulting, right? You know, and it's great to be a part of a great mission like yours. So let's talk a little bit about some of the key initiatives that you guys are focused on right now as an organization in IT. Yeah, a few of them, you know, we're continuously expanding our, what I will call our service portfolio or program portfolio. A good portion of our staff is outbound. So they're out in the community. And Mm. one of the uh, challenges we've historically had there's not the, uh, in behavioral health, it's sure it's healthcare, but it's kind of a, and I don't mean this in a bad way. It's kind of the, a little bit the redheaded stepchild. It's not compensated as well as other areas of healthcare. And so that makes it finances are tight. And because finances are tight, as we sit here in a capitalist market, the greatest application development is done 
for electronic medical records for primary health care and specialty care right. and not so much in behavioral health. So when I came in, they had an application that they were took four years to launch for a new electronic medical record. So they signed a contract and that was a little too long and it, it wasn't working very well. Now, the application itself did have some drawbacks, but one of the other challenges was staff wasn't trained well on it. And one of the things I've learned doing this stuff for several years is a lot of the times what you want to do in some type of integration or implementation, you want to take your workflows and your processes and you want to take a new application and you want to go like this. Right. A lot, the vast majority of initial and sometimes secondary tertiary electronic medical record implementation, this is how we do things like this. And here's your application and it goes like that. And this flails. So the challenge is, is to keep this open and determine what do we need here? The application will give us 80% of what we need. Let's meld those together and see how the application can support us and how, where we need to tweak our workflows and make those a little more usable for the application so we can get this out of the system what we can because no system's perfect. And we're currently between the RFI and RFP process looking at some options for electronic medical records right now. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've worked with this one EMR in behavioral health, which I won't name names, but they won't open their APIs on the back end to allow for analyzing the data. So you literally have to just download raw data and put it in SQL. And it's just like this whole rigmarole. And then they charge you for it. Or there's like a certain connector you can get. It's just... Yeah, I've had a lot of experience in those areas. And you're, one of the things they're really pushing through the Cures Act is interoperability. And there's quote unquote, because those standards don't, not everybody follows the same steps in the standard and it's making the interoperability, the connectivity and the ability to extract and utilize data the way you need to, very challenging. Right. So I hear you. Our standards, exactly. What would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you guys are facing as an organization today, either within IT or just as an organization in general? I think one of the things we've all seen coming even a little bit before the pandemic hit was staffing. We've always been a little bit behind again. That goes back a little bit to the compensation model they have for behavioral health. We have some medical psychiatrists and psychologists, very highly trained people, but the bulk of our staff are master's level and behavioral bachelor's level clinicians, and their compensation isn't fantastic. And that makes it a challenge for us because we can't compete with some of the large hospital systems in that area. So keeping staff, keeping staffing levels up to where we would like to have them is difficult. The pandemic has just kind of exacerbated that. It made it even more difficult. I've been fortunate in my department in IT. We've had very little turnover in the 10 years I've been there and several staff who've been there longer than I, which is really beneficial because they, what rugs certain things are swept under. So. I like that you went there instead of the, what I would have said. Yes, I know. I, that went through my mind. How about any additional best practices that you might offer to our listener? I mean, you've covered a few, but any practical best practices in your team are following that are worth mentioning? Well, I think there's a lot out there and you can look at different standards and a lot of compliance items and things like that. You know, and for in healthcare, you know, the big one's been HIPAA. And everybody talks about, oh, is your application HIPAA compliant? There's no application that's HIPAA compliant. 
they can support compliance, but they're not compliant in and of themselves. It's mm. a compliant is a process and no application is quote unquote HIPAA compliant. It's how you choose to utilize it. Right. And so you can look to those. I like to look at the, a lot of the ISO standards or NIST standards that are put out there and then kind of utilize what is of benefit and not just quote unquote meet a standard, but raise the bar a little bit, make mm. it a little bit better because in that way, if the standard changes and goes up a little bit, you don't have to panic so much and make an adjustment. But, you know, then the standards and security and stuff, it's getting better. The biggest thing is not necessarily which standards you follow. It's that you follow something and that you educate your users. Because, you know, the biggest, there's a kind of a funny little saying going around in the information security industry. And it's, I found our two greatest threats first one is everybody outside the organization. And the second one is everybody inside the organization. You know, our outside threat is usually malicious. The inside threats are usually ignorant. And that's, you know, trying to dispel the ignorance through training and awareness and things like that is, is a big challenge. And if there was a uh, real good best practice to indoctrinate people in best security practices, man, I'd use it, but I haven't found it. Yeah, I hear that. You've touched on security a couple of times. And I mean, of course, because it's important to everyone right now, but particularly mid-market kind of healthcare companies, I feel like are particularly vulnerable to attacks right now. And Sakit Modi, he founded a company called Safe Security. He moderated a panel at one of our events we just did. And he was talking about how, because oftentimes you'll bring security initiatives to a board or your executive fellows and they'll be like, well, what's the ROI, right? Because that's what they usually want to know from IT. It's like, all right, well, what's our ROI going to be, right? And it's even myself, admittedly, because I'm not a security expert, really. That's not my like expertise. And I feel like security experts oftentimes are going pretty deep into that. But anyway, just that a lot of people would struggle with that question. And the way that they're positioning it now is, and I imagine a lot of folks, maybe you guys did this as well, but assessing your risk profile, right? And that is difficult, right? So to do that without an application, there are frameworks you could probably do it with, and it would be a tedious process, but this platform can kind of measure your risk very seamlessly in a matter of days as opposed to months. Give you a grade on that and then basically once you quantify what that risk looks like also quantify what an attack would look like from a financial standpoint and then we bring that and that that's the roi it's like so or rather the risk tolerance are we able to tolerate this level of risk knowing that it will cost us this many millions of dollars if we're comfortable with that level of risk then we stay where we are if we're not then we might need to invest in a few changes right I don't know. I just thought that it kind of helped me think through a few things and in, in positioning security initiatives and that sort of thing. So Yeah. Before those applications were out, we used to do that on a spreadsheet, take your assets and utilize those and define what they are. It helped a lot. And, you know, way back when we didn't call it ROI, we called it Rosalie, return on security investment. Mm. So somebody has been around a long time might remember that phrase. Love it. Yeah. And those are the things. And then you have, you know, some of the newer, I shouldn't say newer, been around for a while, the factor analysis of information risk to it and gets down into the dollar values and different things like that. And I'm no expert on it. I know, know a few people who are. That's another great way for larger companies to 
evaluate their risk and make that measurement, you know, appropriate decisions on, you know, where their risk is and what's worth protecting and at what level. Right. Very cool. What about some of the most innovative things that you guys are doing as an organization or things that are on the horizon that you might be excited about? I know with tight, tight margin and budgets. And so I imagine money's an, always an issue as it is for many behavioral health companies I know of at least, but anything that excited about on the horizon or that you guys are doing right now? You know, I'm always looking to minimize our costs or not have expenses expand tremendously. And we've had one of the big ones, and jumping back into the security realm, is you know email security. Minimize phishing emails and phishing attacks and different, different things and whaling for executives and things like that. And finding companies that can do that and really outsource a lot of the work so I don't have to add staff. And it's something that they can do and provide 24 by 7 by 365 coverage, where me with my current level of 22 staff and everything we're covering for the whole IT needs for the agency, I can't cover it having people around the clock awake. Right. You know, we're on call. Some of the vendors like that. And one of the other things that I've been involved with is company providing what is called PC over IP. And we're putting workstation up in currently up in Azure, not in Azure, in AWS. And utilizing those for some of our mobile workforce. Because in the greater Spokane area, we have a lot of basalt, which is basically volcanic rock. And the wireless carrier signals don't get through that and hmm. very well. So we did a lot of areas where we have limited bandwidth. And by utilizing the PC over IP technology, which basically just sends pixels back and forth and not really data, it's a lot faster and it's more secure because everything is located in currently in the AWS cloud for us. And that's been beneficial and something I'm looking at expanding further to the cost standpoint. We can utilize Chromebooks instead of providing $1,500, $1,600 laptops right. and all the accoutrements that go with those. And if somebody runs into a problem, instead of having to build a new laptop, here's another Chromebook. Go do it. Wow. That is cool. I've heard of it like in passing, but I haven't really heard about any of folks really using that yet. That's really cool. I'm thinking of a number of different clients where that could be super useful. So um. yeah, it's a good solution. It's a company that started here in the Spokane area. I tend to be fond of those companies because I've helped a few kind of get started a little bit over these numerous years. Most of them have done really, really quite well. So it's exciting to do that. And the gentleman who turned me on to this, I had worked with him through another startup 20 plus years ago. Very cool. I'll have to get the name of the company when we're done here. So a couple last questions as we wrap up. First would be, and it's funny because I was kind of having a conversation about telehealth in behavioral health, you know, because it's interesting, especially with all everything you're seeing with psychiatry and you guys are kind of different. Like this isn't the same, but these companies kind of over prescribing medication, like, or making the ease of access, like, or prescribing ketamine, all this crazy stuff. But then in general, just from a counseling standpoint, like in my experience, the relationships with a therapist is very intimate and trying to forge that initially over telehealth could be challenging. So the question is, regardless, do you think will come in time in the behavioral health industry? Or what do you think will be the biggest changes as time passes? You know, that's a great question. And I don't think any technology ever will overcome the need in 
the behavioral health space for the true face-to-face right. because there are subtleties that to our meeting right here that we ne- might not necessarily catch on to. And it's a little more important for the clinical staff to be able to see that. I had a discussion with a previous medical director several years ago about telehealth, and this is years well before the pandemic. And he said, look, the difficulty is we can't pick up on a lot of clues looking at somebody through a camera. We right. need to be face-to-face with them. So I don't think there's really ever going to be anything that's going to necessarily overcome that. We have the challenge and we're defining terms now in our space where you have telehealth and telemedicine, telehealth being picking up the telephone and talking to a client and telemedicine having a video with them. So those are a few of the things that we're kind of defining. And Washington State did a great service by providing a bunch of Zoom accounts to a lot of clinicians throughout Washington State through the pandemic so they could be in touch with their clients. Because initially, we were in the early days of the pandemic, in the very early days, we were having clients ask, hey, can we do this as a video conference and we do it as a phone call? And then pandemic came and we were fortunate to be able to move 500 staff remote within a week. And that healthcare authority here in Washington State really helped support that with the Zoom accounts that they provided. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. So last question we like to ask, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? From my perspective, for now, 10 years isn't a very long time. Just that it's going to go fast. What I would recommend doing is every quarter or every year, write down notes of what you did during the year, good and bad, so you can reflect on it a little bit and just kind of keep a long diary. And I would you know, recommend using a paper journal for that because the mediums that I've seen come in and out over the years that I've been doing this have changed desperately. I mean, when I started, I was excited to see take backup, go back up one megabyte a minute. And we're a little bit beyond that, that speed barrier. So yeah, I love that. I actually, I don't do that today. That is something I think I might do starting now. So Thank you, Paul. And thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. Yeah. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you all very soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.